RadioInfluence.com. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast. Frank is not with us today, but I am joined by an absolutely fantastic guest. I'm honored to have um, FBI, he calls himself former special agent Kyle Serafin, who you may know uh, the first time I saw him was on the Bongino show. Um, So Bongino had him on. He had a two hour long interview. He was very, very uh, smart and sharp and to the point and credible, obviously. And so um, we crossed paths on Truth Social, and we've been chatting a little bit, and I asked him to come on the show, and here he is. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me, Tracy. (laughs) Glad to have you here. Um, There's like really a a litany of things that I want to talk to you about today. We've got an hour, so I'm going to give you the floor. Talk about the timeline of what happened, where you've gotten to today, and what you've experienced, and potentially we can pepper in some audio and stuff like that as the interview goes on. Okay, game on. Go for it. Floor's yours. (laughs) I used to do something that's unlike what a lot of other agents do. We touch a a multitude of cases. Uh, We touched everything from white-collar criminal work to gangs, drugs, et cetera, uh, child trafficking cases, and uh, and then all the way into the national security stuff like counterterrorism and uh, counterintelligence. And unlike what a lot of FBI agents do, um, and I'll say a lot of agents specifically on the, on the national security side, I got an opportunity to get face to face with a lot of our subjects. And so you get a very different feel for someone when you're looking at their social media accounts, when you're looking at what they've written, um, evidence from their bank statements and and what their toll records are versus sitting in a car and watching them come in and out of their front door every day and drive out and have lunch with people or go do drug deals or whatever it may be that they're involved in. You get a really different sense of it. I I say um, one of my buddies had a conversation with me. He said, do you really ever have a subject? Are they really the subject of your investigation if you've never seen the person? And I think that's true for a lot of local law enforcement. That's the way that they operate. It's the way that detectives operate in your your local police departments. And the FBI is mostly, um, you know, they're mostly an indoor group with without minimal experience kind of going out into the world. Um as, as new agents. And so, so I got a, an opportunity early on. Intelligence gathering basically is what the FBI does. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So it's actually called uh, Pfizer, um, physical physical surveillance. Um, but that's 100% underneath the intelligence division at Washington Field. So yeah, that's it was, uh, you know, we we're getting direct, you know, photographs, video, um, sometimes audio, more, more frequently not. Um, but we were just getting out there and seeing what they're doing. So yeah, that's all intelligence information. And it all gets fed back into the machine, you know, and the case agent will go and apply it to their case however it helps them. Okay, so continue. So you're doing that under in the Washington field office in what year? Uh, I'm doing that between 2018 and 2021. Uh, my first kind of notable experience on the team was less than two weeks on it. Uh, we got noticed that we had to fly to Alaska, which is always exciting. And it was in the middle of June, I want to say, end of June. So it was beautiful. And we were out there for a so-called white supremacy case, which I think was um, the first kind of eye-opening piece for me. We flew up and watched the subject fly in to the uh, the airport there in Anchorage. And then he drove around and 
and he hung out with his parents for a couple of days. And then he got in a car and drove off into the wilderness and we followed him and he jumped onto a bush plane and flew out and went on a, a, a hiking and a camping trip for the better part of a week. And he was gone. <laughs> and that was the entirety of what we were watching because we he might have met up with other, you know, nefarious white supremacists, uh, <laughs> but he didn't. He was just hanging out, I think, with his cousin or his sister or whoever this, you know, uh, younger female that was a family member. And, and he went on a really cool Alaska, you know, uh, bush trip. So good for him. But that kind of opened my eyes initially to, you know, sort of the the weakness of a lot of the the, the national security. So, you know, the, the white supremacist threat that exists. I saw other guys that were, you know, 22 year old kid who's blogging or writing on Reddit and sitting there at a, with a laptop at Starbucks um, in a polo shirt and khakis. And we'd follow him around. And it's like this kid barely, you know, he's a college kid or whatever he was like, he just wasn't He's not out there masterminding some sort of plot to take down people of different skin colors. He's just a kid and he's writing maybe maybe awful things online, but you know, he's a keyboard warrior. So and the FBI is watching him. So so in an in an in an investigation like this, like one of the things that I've heard you speak about is they don't ever close. Basically. They don't have to. Yeah. If they're not if they're not designed to be a criminal investigation, and there's really two distinct formats for the FBI's case openings. One would be called national security. Those are intelligence operations. And then the other would be criminal. And uh, just for listeners, I'm kind of honing the way that we speak about it, because if you're not privy to it, it's, it's difficult. A criminal case is linear. There's a crime, it takes place, or it may be ongoing. And there's someone who committed the crime. You gather that evidence in a linear fashion and you work your way towards criminal prosecution. So you're either going to indict them at a grand jury or you're going to put a complaint out and the judge will sign off on it. You go and arrest that person and then they face those charges. And eventually they are either acquitted of them or they're convicted. Mm -hmm. And so that's very, very linear. The intelligence cycle is a circle and it feeds information in on one end and it spits out analyzed information on the other end. And that's its purpose. So when they're trying to gather information, it may not be in aid of criminal prosecution at all. I mean, that's the goal, I think, of everybody who is a criminal investigator is they kind of hope they're going to end up with one. But very, very successful um, you know, counterintelligence and counterterrorism cases will be considered a great case uh, and worth briefing to the director without ever actually having any criminal prosecution because there may not be a crime, specifically in counterterrorism. A lot of times it's bad ideas that may result in a crime. And if those crimes did happen, they would obviously be prosecuted, but they may never get there. And so a lot of times you get these sort of dangerous situations where they're doing what they did in the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping, which I'm not privy to the facts of it, but I'm familiar with that sort of case. I saw 20 of them or, or more when we were doing these uh, you know, high priority counterterrorism deployments. And the FBI is more than happy to pay people to encourage you know, the worst ideas. And it's not legally considered entrapment. There are there are very specific parameters of what legal entrapment looks like. And as long as they skirt those boundaries, they're still good with uh, continuing on and building that case. So let's just for argument's sake, take white supremacist quote that went up to Alaska to have a family trip. Sure. Just because the FBI, how does that open? Like somebody says, you know, calls in and says, oh, my gosh, this guy's a white supremacist. He said something nasty online. And then you guys open up a counterintelligence investigation on him and then potentially never close it ever. Like, can this guy's life be monitored forever just because of that? Like if there's no good agent like you or someone who has any scruples to close that, does it just continue in perpetuity? 
so it can continue indefinitely. Whether it will continue for his whole life, I think, is maybe a stretch. I think people get bored at some point and they either shut it down or they find some other action. So there's a good example. Uh, the Washington field office had a uh, a guy in uh, northern Virginia that they had had a, an open counterterrorism investigation. It wasn't counterintelligence. Um, a counterterrorism investigation into him for 20 plus years, 22, 23 years. Uh, and they eventually did arrest this guy, but it wasn't for terrorism. It was for child pornography, which I think we all agree is a problem. And we all want that found and we all want people not to be looking at them. And yet it took 23 years to build that case. And I think that was kind of an also ran, you know, uh, it was a, a runner up prize to the actual terrorism. So, you know, they had every detail of this guy's life for a very long time. I've also been on cases where we followed people around that had been open. I think they had said the guy was 40. And I want to say that they had opened on him after he got out of high school because he started, you know, mouthing violent rhetoric. He was showing up at protests that got out of hand uh, down at the White House. And and legitimately, he was a concern. I mean, I, I when we got briefed on him, you wanted somebody to follow this guy, but not for his whole life. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe at some point we have to either fish or cut bait and decide whether someone's actually going to go and do what I would call a kinetic action or they're going to just back off. Did, did it change at all? Like in the in the few years you were there from 18, because 18 was right in the throes of Spygate. Like what what after Alaska, what did you see that you were like, mm, I'm not so sure about this? What happened? Well, every every time that my team would get spun up and I talked to guys who had been on that team for a very long time, um, they would hit the kind of the button um my my buddy used to do a visual. And so his visual was that there's two case agents. Uh, they're reading the, you know, the paper and they've got their feet up on the desk and they're leaning back and having their coffee first thing in the morning. And they're trying to figure out what they can add to their case. That's going to be of value. And they would go, hmm, you know, what, what have we not done? We've got this, we've got this, we, you know, we've got, we've done um, subpoenas and so on. Maybe we put surveillance on them. And so they would hit the the button that just says put surveillance on them. And then, you know, the red light would go off with the Claxton in our hangar and everybody would scramble and there'd be <laughs> phone calls coming out. You know, this is the big one. And so we would get this sort of, um, you know, this case has to be handled right now and you're going to get deployed to it and all this other stuff. And then we would go do that. They, we would do the thing that they would expect. And then you would just sit there and just watch. And it was just like, you know, a 28 year old kid living in his mom's basement who was wearing the same black t-shirt most days. So he was easy to see, but he would just go crash on his friend's house and do drugs. And then he would come back home and, you know, nobody liked him and he was probably angry online and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we just, we saw these, like, this is the big one all the time. And it just wasn't the big one. It just, we didn't see people actually taking action. There was very, very few times when we actually had sort of an interdiction when we showed up to do surveillance. And that was, there was a thing that got done, um, but the one time that I saw it really go where we just thought it was a really legitimate case and there was a, a real danger to the public uh, and a more imminent danger, you know, we found out the guy was um, was psychotic and probably should have been picked up on the Baker Act in Florida and probably should have been sent into an institution. And it all just went, you know, once you realize and dig into the case, you just it's just not there. It's just not there in the way that that the FBI likes to represent it. So I'm confident there are good plots that are that are um, disrupted and that there are bad people that are intercepted from their worst ideas. But I don't think we hear about them. And they're certainly not the majority that I saw. So that's the thing that I think the American people are just like myself included, even in what I do. I think FBI now and I think they're out stalking and harassing Americans because that's all we see. And even when they come out and try to be um, 
noble. Like the other day when um, Merrick Garland and Chris Ray came out and gave the press conference, you're sitting there saying you're basically saying that the Chinese government's doing what you're doing and you got people in the Chinese government on indictment, but you're doing the same thing to innocent people standing outside of abortion clinics and J6 defendants who are in there on misdemeanor charges. Like, talk to me about January 6th. You had mentioned some of that on Bongino, so tell us about it. Well, I think the story of January 6th actually goes back into 2020. I think that if you don't look at it in the way that this country changed so dramatically, um, you know, in March of 2020, I was on a counterterrorism case in New Mexico and they shut down Virginia where I lived outside of DC. And, you know, my wife was calling me and telling me that she was concerned and, you know, do we have to worry about this? And it's like, well, we've got friends and neighbors who are nearby and I don't think people are going to start going door to door and doing the zombie routine. So, you know, there was just a lot of fear and there was a lot of the unknown out there. And in the meantime, I'm following a guy who seemed like he was also a a fairly legitimate terrorist candidate, Um, huge human being, just really, um, you know, obtaining weapons, swearing into, you know, some sort of uh, either ISIS or Al Qaeda type um, stuff online. And so, you know, real, real troubling actions. And it seemed like it was a legitimate case. And then we wrapped that up. We did our two weeks. We came back out. As far as I know, that guy's probably still being followed and probably, you know, he's never committed an act and I've never heard that he was inter, inter, you know, interdicted. And so no one's ever arrested this guy. So he's still doing whatever he was doing. Um, so that didn't materialize either. And then we've got these, these riots that started just popping up all over the urban areas. And it started on the the West Coast. From what I could tell, you saw a lot of like anger in Portland and Seattle and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what they do. And then we saw it move over to the Midwest and it was in Minneapolis and um, and Kenosha and so on. And then it eventually got to D.C. at some point and the activists there started doing the same things. And, you know, they went from activists to rioters. There's no question about it. Like they had a certain mindset and then they started getting violent and then violent was acceptable. And we weren't arresting people that were attacking a federal courthouse and we were sending, you know, teams of federal agents, Bortac and so on out to try to stop what was happening in Portland. And so I saw all that. Was there any outcry from people inside? Like, what are we doing? Well, of course, because everybody that's in the FBI, like it's not a partisan organization at its core. The people that sign up are a lot like me and and maybe better than me. You know, they're just they're just right down the middle. Like you've seen this guy, Stephen Friend, and, and he and I talk very frequently and he's just he's not a partisan guy. They're not MAGA Trump people. That's not their world. Um, their their interest is is law enforcement. It's like find the bad guy, whatever side he's on, and you can't do that anymore. You got to stop. There's a there's a certain boundary. There's a left and a right that we're allowed to have in this country that's not outside of the legal uh, limits, and you have to stay within that. And if you choose not to, you face the consequences. But we weren't seeing those consequences realized. Um, so my very weird experience was that the uh, the Washington field office started kind of screaming, "Do something." And as I recall, it was uh, A.G. Barr that was he came down to the, the field office and he was in the command post and we had the vice president down there. So I guess that was uh, Mike Pence. And, um, you know, all the the FBI executives are in there and they're they're getting riled up. And so what do they do? They they body armor up a bunch of federal agents and night and day had us marching around in D.C. But the National Guard was in D.C. They were on every corner in these like sandbagged up, you know, deuce and a half trucks parked there. No, no weapons but they're holding territory. So we're marching around the green zone. 
not where the riots were, away from the riots. Just to be a show, basically? Yeah. So uh, those of us who had been in the military would call it like a presence patrol. It's just like you march around just to show that you're physically there. And that's what we did. We marched around and it was grab bag armor. So some people were wearing their soft armor and some people were wearing their hard plate carriers. Uh, Some people were wearing pink tennis shoes. Some people were wearing boots. Uh, Some people had rifles. Some people had, you know, duty guns. Some people were concealed. Some were not. It's just it was a complete... um, it showed exactly kind of how we operate when we don't have a plan because that's not a federal agent job. We're investigators. We're not uh, an invading army in any way, shape or form, nor should we be. Right. So we were, you know, I went at one point, they had us march around and we marched around from Washington field office to the J. Edgar Hoover building. And then we sat there and we hung out with the guys from HRT, which is the tactical response team, the tier one. And, you know, they got all their, their quad night vision helmets set up and their suppressed rifles laying around on bags in case they have to respond to something, but they didn't, you know, what is the need to respond with a like a tier one law enforcement SWAT team that does counterterrorism work and, you know, kills bad guys? <laughs> like, what are they going to go do to a bunch of people that are throwing bricks and eating granola bars and screaming at cops? That's just not what makes sense. So, they, you know, the, the day after the, the Antifa riders, the BLM riders, whatever their ideology was, had burned St. John's Church directly across from the White House. And that was when they put uh, President Trump in the bunker and so on. Um, you know, my team was sent out there. We were a covert surveillance team and we spent a bunch of money to have vehicles that were not listed as FBI vehicles. Uh, if you went and pulled the, the registry on them and then they made us go drive and park in front of all these TV cameras and stand out there. And like two of my buddies were on the front page of Fox News. You know, they're low visibility surveillance agents. That's what they do for a living. Yeah. And now you're putting them out there in their body armor um, standing out. Luckily, you know, they've got large biceps and they look like studs. So they, they look really good. They look like, you know, a really good presence for the FBI, but it's completely absurd that we were spending our time out there. And while we're there, we're seeing people, you know, load up uh, bricks and put them down and cover them in blankets of granola bars and, and putting bags of food and stuff for these, the riders that were going to be there that night. And it's just like, what do, you can't leave bricks here. Like, no, none, no to that. And uh, so we saw that and there was no mass arrests and that's really where we're getting to with with uh what happened at january 6 is that we didn't see that that push to put everybody in handcuffs and throw them into the dc jail system which is awful uh, and yeah uh, i mean i mean it's just it's just atrocious i mean some of the conditions have been ascribed but you know i had a friend that went in there for a for a dui that was actually a head injury and um it's just it's a terrible place to spend your time and it's uh it's definitely not a good place if you're a midwestern you know white um, you know, middle middle intellect person who's made a bad decision one time in your life. Like everybody in, in there is for violent crimes and, and it's very racially charged, which is unfortunate. My buddy told me he was the only white guy when he was in there and nobody messes with him because he's got a tattoo on his neck and he was uh, punching the wall savagely because he had had a, um, a head injury. And so nobody knew what to do with him because he looked like a crazy person. He's got bloody knuckles and he looks like he can fight because he used to fight. Uh, but you know, if you're not that guy, if you don't look like a complete madman um, who's slamming his hands into the wall until they bleed, I can imagine that being a really awful and scary place to be. And I'm sure it was. And it, it continues to be for so many people. So we just didn't see the mass arrests happen in 2020 when the January 6th you know, riot that got out of hand. And I, I'm very uncomfortable with people using the word insurrection because that has a legal definition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. It was a riot. It was a bunch of people that did a bunch of dumb things. They messed up a building that the government owns. Um, like so many other government buildings that were messed with in 2020. And the response was so, so far um, in, into the red 
compared to what had happened previously, it's just it's it's shocking. And so there were people that were saying this is our 9-11 in my office during the executive meeting. Did they mean like, that? For sure. Yeah, because the 9-11 case was what you built a career on. I mean, you think about it from the FBI side. of it. Oh, they built their career on investigating 9-11 in New York. Right. There was uh, there was unlimited leads to follow down. There was unlimited money that followed it. You could write to it forever. I was there. I saved the world by doing this action. And so I'm this person. Well, this was their 9-11. And so the, uh, there's people that that basically base their career on what they're going to do and what they've been doing. So when they say this is our 9-11 or worse than 9-11 and you're coming at it from an FBI perspective, they don't mean necessarily, they mean for themselves and personal enrichment more than they mean it was worse than 9-11. Right. They're not talking about loss of life. They're not talking about impact on the country necessarily. I wouldn't say. I would say that they're talking about the investigative priorities and the funding and the budgeting and the resources they're going to marshal and how it's going to look on their their next application mm. for supervisory positions as they move upwards. Like that's the way that it goes. And so in the FBI, it's never what you did. It's what you can write to. That's kind of the way that they teach you at the academy. It's, you know, if, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. So let's say that you're in charge of the um you know a squad and your squad is out there doing arrests well you write to you know my you know i supervised a squad that did all these things like did you arrest anybody no of course not like did you go outside of the office no did you make a phone call maybe okay uh but you signed off on the case opening and you approved all of the the 302s and the serials that are put in there these are the uh, the daily documents of, of of putting paper into the case that builds the evidence and the chain so that you can prosecute it so the supervisor will write to Supervised, you know, a squad that high volume, X number of arrests, X number of cases open. They didn't open any of them. They didn't, you know, they're not the investigator, but that's how it works when you're in the in the bureau. So when you're looking at January 6th and they're going to open up 900 cases nationwide, you know, people are going to be able to write their whole career on what they did. As disgusting as that is to, to people like uh, Steve and Friend and I, like we look at it and you just go, it's a misdemeanor. I, I actually had a, a really nice phone call last night, a, a Zoom call with something like 30 or 25 retired agents, um, all different backgrounds, you know, dozens of years in the in the bureau, like combined, they were all like in the, the 12 to some of them had left after 12 or, or 13 years, but most of them had 20, 25, 30 years of, of experience. And, you know, they, they said, if you tried to bring a misdemeanor case to an to a assistant U.S. attorney, that's the federal prosecutors, they, they would have laughed you out of the office mm. for the entirety of the time in the FBI until january 6th yeah so that fundamental change is it's notable i mean it's and it's obvious how it works so so you would see like random things come across and like you'd have to pick them up and and figure out what they were and like you know most most agents would want to go out and talk to these people and some of them it feels to me like they were nefarious in what they were doing honestly it really does tell me i'm wrong but it seems like they're stalking these people hunting them basically that's what it feels like well, I mean, the people that you're dealing with are FBI agents. They're criminal investigators. So that's th- that is their instinct, right? Uh, it's like uh, you throw a ball and there are certain dogs that will just run for a ball. They don't care about anything else. So running down people is the job that I mean, we don't ever know how good the information is unless you had the original source. So whatever whatever the allegation or the information that came in, some of them are obvious on their face to me that they're just garbage. They're just they're just trash. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a visual to it. We got pulled in off all of our uh, substantive casework. We got pulled away from our, our normal duties. My team was no longer on surveillance. We were sitting in an office and we were working what we call leads. And leads are their tips. OK, um, they can come in on the Internet. They can come in on the phone. There were tens of thousands of them on any given day, every day after January 6th for you know a month or two, 
maybe more. I, 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 at some point, I, like in March, I stopped keeping track. In March of 21, I moved on and we had a baby and I, I moved and left the office. But there were days we'd walk in and there'd be 28,000 leads waiting to be reviewed. So you've got every intel analyst and you've got every criminal investigator, special agent, and everybody is just reading these damn things and trying to figure out what's going on and like what they say. And a great example would be like, I knew Tracy back in high school. You know, she had a poster of Ronald Reagan, you know, in her room and she thought he was great and she probably loves Trump. I haven't seen her in 13 years. The last I heard she was living in Omaha, Nebraska. You should find her. And she was probably at January 6th. Seriously? that was a, that was a, like a almost a verbatim example. I changed the names up a little bit, but you know, I haven't seen this person in ten years. Um, picture number one seventy five looks a lot like him or her, and you should go get him. You know, and so from personal that's an allegation ex- that yeah, that's nothing. From personal experience, there was some chick with the bullhorn that everybody on Twitter was saying was me, and I wasn't sure. even there, so I'm sure, sure. I was a tip seven thousand million times. It's very probable. So I didn't see your tip per se, but I saw people that were making allegations that there were certain famous people that were involved, that were certain people that were in the news media or that were on, um, you know, that were political pundits. There's no question about it. And so you read it and you go, well, this is just a personal vendetta. Like this is not a this is not a tip. This is somebody's opinion. There's no fact behind this. And there's no allegation or information that a federal crime occurred or that person was involved in the federal crime. Like I would throw that out. I would never waste our investigative resources. And by the way, that's the standard for all FBI agents who get these tips. We get tips on everything. I mean, people would call in and they would make a tip about you today that had nothing to do with January 6th. And you would just go, you know, no. Like, I guess you had a house fire and somebody could make some allegation about it and we would read it and we'd go, no, I'm not gonna investigate that. Because it's just not worth, there's not enough information for it to actually be a federal crime. But but did you see other agents like you who weren't throwing those away just because of, course, of their yeah. politics? Like well, that's the thing. I don't think it was politics. I think that they just, there was so much scrutiny on at the time. And there was so much, um, there was so, so much pressure to generate information. I think a lot of people listen to what the media said. They believe that police, I mean, they're, if you listen to what, um, I keep bringing up friend, but Stephen Friend and I talk every day now because we've kind of thrown our hat into the same arena and we're the only two guys standing in it that anybody mm-hmm. can see. And, you know, he told me that he, he, uh, told his ASAC, uh, this is the two supervisors above him that, you know, that nobody died. No, no police officers died because of the January 6th riot. Yeah. And that was news to them. I sat in an office in, in March of, of this year and was talking about Hunter Biden's laptop and just some of the wild stuff that I'd seen on there. I mean, somebody made a really great clip of, you know, him smoking crack and sitting in a bathtub and sensory deprivation and doing all the things that we've seen. Um, and they put it to a Biggie Small song and it was funny and it was like, you know, three minutes of just wild footage. And we we're talking about that, that I'd seen it. And I had a uh, another agent walk in and say, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Like, wh- when did this come out? Like, is this new? You know, it's like, do you not pay attention to anything? But a lot of people don't. A lot of FBI agents will put their head to the ground. They're like, a, um, you know, like a bloodhound might. And they're not looking around them and they're not looking for anything else. They're just looking, smelling the scent, the scent and they're doing their job. And I, I don't fault them for that. But it does lead to this this sort of dangerous myopic focus where people just get, OK, January 6th was a big problem. Got it. Bureau says it's a problem. I'm going to go and 
and and run after this problem. So I don't know if it was politics and I, I wouldn't attribute it to something like that. I mean, I don't think it was malice, which is even people. worse, because honestly, that means these are just following orders, people like little ants yeah. that are doing whatever the seventh floor says and whatever their agenda is. And you could tell me anything you want, but there are some really nasty, terrible people that are up there running things that do not appreciate the Constitution and do not respect the American way of life. It's yes to that. clear, right? Yep. So then COVID, COVID was another issue that you had a big problem with. Um, what did you do surrounding COVID? So um, I, I got COVID in 2020. I think it was in October, late October, early November. Um, at the time, there was no vaccine. There was no real obvious treatments. You know, we were hearing all the rumors that everybody else heard, whether it was hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, and there's all this pushback and, you know, all this kind of nonsense. Um I was what 20, 38, something like that, or 38 or 39 years old. I'm in pretty good shape. I, I work out pretty regularly. I had a pregnant wife. I had two little kids, you know, under the age of five. And so we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know how it was going to affect children. There was just a lot of um, scare tactics out there, but not a lot of great information about what was going on. So, you know, I, I got sick for a couple of days. It was a bummer. I didn't feel great, but I was able to call into work and talk to them and kind of give them my symptoms. I've been a paramedic for about a decade. So, um, at this point over a decade and, you know, I was sick. So I drank some fluids and, you know, had some warm beverages and had some tea and some soup and that kind of thing. And then I was fine. And I had one night where I shook, you know, pretty good. And I was like, oh, that was, that was weird. But, you know, to be fair, um, and I'm not much of a drinker, but I've had worse hangovers than, uh, than my experience with COVID. And that was it for me. I, you know, my whole team got a two week quarantine. So they were kind of like, I was getting text messages from my buddies thanking for the two week vacation and none of them had symptoms. So that was funny, but they were all exposed to me because we were in the office at the same time. Um, weirdly, when I reported it, I had my, uh, my GS 14 and my GS 15 supervisors. So that's my, uh, my special agent. I'm sorry, my supervisory special agent and the assistant special agent in charge of the, the DC intelligence branch. Um, that I was on, they both claimed that they were not in the same room with me, even though they were for an hour and a half. And so they could continue doing their work, mm. which whatever. So it was um, all so people, BS basically. I mean, it thing. was, yeah, we, we were looking at it. And it's like, okay, either it's a big deal or it's not a big deal. Like I know where I got it. I'm pretty confident. I got it from my buddy who came back from quarantine and then, you know, the quarantine, they were always adjusting the dates and then, and the amount of time and the exposure. And so he came back and he had just gotten it from the SWAT team. Uh, operation that they were all on and then he brought it back into the office i suspect uh, but he was feeling okay and so then i took it home and then we all got another two weeks off so be it but um you know that was the end of covid for me i've been done with this since october november of 2020 i've lived my life i uh, the only time you know I'll, I'll refuse to go into places with a mask unless i know that i have to go in there i put a mask on a few times when i was doing investigations i had a an allegation that a little girl was uh, sexually assaulted and the only way to get into the, the hospital without, you know, setting off alarms and having people lose their mind was to put a mask on. And so, OK, fine. I'm willing to do that for uh, an 11 year old girl that has that kind of allegation. But um, I'm not willing to go into a grocery store like that. I just I just didn't do it. And, you know, I didn't go to a restaurant. I walked into restaurants and they said, you have to put a mask on. And I say, how about I just don't do that? And I sit down and we pretend like I did because I'm going to take it off when I sit down. And it's like, no, <laughs> yeah. it's like, OK, I'll take my business somewhere else. Like, I, I don't. I, you know, I, I walked out of a restaurant. I drove 30 minutes to a restaurant in New Mexico. And then uh, they told me I had to have a mask to walk three feet and sit down at a table with my kids. And I wasn't going to do it. I just left. So which was the, a bummer. 
they're forcing you guys to, to do all kinds of protocol, the FBI, the vaccine well, mandate. Yeah. So the protocol got weirder and weirder. So the uh, executive order came out maybe in August or September. We were hearing the rumblings of it. I think it actually was released in September. And the, the FBI picked a deadline in November. So on um, on September 22nd, I put in a religious accommodation request based on my pro-life beliefs and um, and my you know my Catholic faith. And I said that I have no interest in taking this vaccine based on the way it was developed. And so I filed that. That was the last I ever heard about it from the FBI. So I put that in. I haven't heard about anything from it today. Technically speaking, the FBI considers me an employee who doesn't get paid. So they still should be working on that, but they're not. They're waiting on the injunction and the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that's uh, had a really strong review. I'm involved in several lawsuits because of it. So, you know, I'm I'm we've been fighting it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, I put money behind it and lawyers and so on. So. So that happens. And then uh, in October, and this is kind of where it gets real weird for me, I did this whistleblower activity where I brought a, a letter, an email that was printed out um, from my computer. So they know who printed it and they can obviously track that thing back. That's the way national security work works. And it was about the EDU threat tag, EDU threats, which is what they were tagging. They don't specifically say parents, but they say people who are agitating at school boards and threatening school board officials and so on. So we know what it means, right? And and I had the FBI actually argue in a a filing, a court filing, that um, you know it doesn't say that they're going to open investigations in you know into these people. And it's like well, what? That's Why the else fundamental. You- yeah, it's the fundamental disconnect between having a lawyer, a support staff person who's never been in front of a case, and like that's what the FBI does. We open investigations. So that was so. your first foray into sharing information with Congress. I'm assuming then, right? Right. And I and I shared a couple other things at the time there. There were some other kind of disconcerting things. I had worked in the Afghan refugee camps or the the parolee camps as they came in. Um, we had two. 10,000 Afghan populations in New Mexico. One of them was at Fort Bliss, which is the army base, and it was run by the army. And the other one was at Holloman Air Force Base, and that was run by the Air Force. And, you know, we were in charge of major crimes that were committed out there because they weren't military connected and they had nothing to do with it. So, you know, I went out there and saw some things. Um, And and so I, I chatted with Congress about that too, or the congressional staffers about that. Um, and then I also brought up the fact that I saw that uh, uh, enforcement of the FACE Act, which mm. this is all I mean, everything is connected. Unfortunately, it seems bizarre, but I found myself in this little maelstrom of like in the middle of nowhere, which Las Cruces is kind of a little oasis from the world, except when you're working for the FBI doing these weird things. And so I saw that uh, the, the FBI had prioritized. Um, enforcement of the FACE Act and, and defending abortion clinics as like the number three counterterrorism priority. And I think the top two were all, you know, either racially motivated or militia, you know, whatever, violent extremists. So we've got our two, you know, our three big buzzwords. It's the uh, the anti uh, the anti-abortion people or the pro-lifers uh, was number three. And then number two and number one were people who are white supremacist, racist. Um, By and, whose uh, definition? I mean, it's just it's a fluid definition. It's whatever fits the boat, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no there's no uh, codified federal law saying what is and what is not white supremacy. So it's whatever you know. There's kind of a feels piece in that. That's because people so have brought- the ability to believe that, like as horrible as it is in this country, you're allowed to be a white supremacist. It's not against the law, right? And as recently as you know, in the beginning of my lifetime, they were that was being defended by the ACLU, a very lefty kind of organization, was defending the rights of Nazis to have parades because you know, in my opinion, and I run right down the middle in a lot of ways, or at least I did until the the Overton window shifted so dramatically left. I would say that um, you know, I want all those ideas. I want Nazis to have parades. And and I'll kind of flesh that out, but it's like your ideas are terrible, mm-hmm. and no reasonable people are going to look at your 
your uh, your ideas and think that that's going to convert them to it. In fact, you look ridiculous and you're going to march around and you're going to do things from 1940s Germany. Like you're you're a clown. Uh, but please continue because clowns exposed for being clowns will continue to look like clowns and they will not pick up followers. But if you make them sequestered, it does the same thing we did with the mafia um, in, in the prohibition era. It's like you, you make it go underground. It exists in dark spaces and it festers and it continues. But the sunlight absolutely disinfects these kind of ideas. And so the more that we were able to talk about them, I think that's better. This whole concept of like hate speech and running away from it. I mean, that's what's protected by the First Amendment, the mm -hmm. way I read it. And I know I'm not alone in this. I think uh, Ben Shapiro probably said it. And I heard it on a podcast. But, you know, inflammatory speech is the only speech that really requires protection because yep. mild speech does not. Nobody cares about mild speech. Like if you're talking about what's going on in your garden, no one's going to fight you. But so they you, might fight you if you're Alex Stein and, and you walk around and <laughs> say whatever, you know, whatever he just did the other day and get spit on. So anyway, you so you do you do the threat tags against parents, which Merrick Garland actually denied. That was right. Like, well, and this was the, so this was the allegation that I thought was real troubling. I actually didn't. The threat tags against parents is the perfectly reasonable thing for them to do for intelligence purposes. What's troubling is when the the AG gets up in front of Congress and says that we're not doing that. And that's what I heard is the potential lie by the AG. And that's what I, that, that was the scandal. Why of it. is it I mean, normal? Otherwise, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I think the majority of us would absolutely disagree with you that it's not scandalous to have the FBI opening up investigations on parents who are angry at school board meetings because their kids are being groomed by crazy teachers. So, Why is that normal? Well, it's not normal. I didn't, I, don't, I would never say that it's normal, but what I would say is that's not necessarily a reason to make a protected disclosure to Congress. We have to find a violation of rule, policy, or federal law, and lying to Congress is that. And so very specifically, it doesn't mean that there's not a problem. It doesn't mean that the American people shouldn't know about it and that it shouldn't be an issue. Like I saw issues with it right away. I'm a parent and I won't send my kids to schools on the fear that they're going to be indoctrinated. So all of this stuff, I'm 100% in the camp of parents on this case. However, when it comes to specifically protected whistleblower status and the and the processes we have to go through, there's a statute, there's a federal statute there. I can bring anything to Congress for any reason under Understood. 5 USC, yeah, 70, 7211. But under a whistleblower protection, it's very specific. And the and the allegation that I made was that there was a potential, my belief Perjury. that the attorney general, yeah, had may have perjured himself. And if that's the case, that's a reason to bring that specifically to Congress and Understood. actually engage those protections. Does that make much more so, sense than the way you said it originally, only because I'm not, just, I'm a normie. It's just such a, yeah, no, it's such a, <laughs> it's such a litigious environment right now. And there are so many, you know, that's something the FBI has contested that no normal person would believe that uh, what I did was whistleblower activity. And I disagree because it was immediately apparent to me because I follow the news and I watched Merrick Garland's testimony. And so when the AG is up there testifying, I'm listening. You know, I work under his department of the justice. So like they're, that's the boss. What's interesting to me is that I, I mean, you shared a clip of, I guess, what was the final straw for you, where you were out in New Mexico at a an open uh, county land, what everybody uses as a shooting range, perfectly legal, shooting, doing target practice on a day off. And it was the middle of the day. There happened to be a school several hundred yards away. Um, well in, in the legal realm for you to be able to do this. The cops came because somebody heard the gunshots around a school and you get this OPR investigation opened up on you. They say it's because of this interaction with this police officer, which is absurd. I'll put the link to this below. It was a very cordial, very rapid 
interaction where this cop didn't even write a report. That's how easy peasy it was. Mm -hmm. But she says in her call with you that you've shared that just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean you should do it, i.e. perception is is supreme, right? Right. That should, shouldn't that not be what the same standard that's applied to what we just talked about? Like, should you really, as the FBI, be arresting people who want to preserve the sanctity of life and have a kid walk up and get assaulted by a 70 year old, verbally assaulted, but assaulted nonetheless? Sure. Like, shouldn't you protect, you know, parents who are pissed off that their kids are learning how to give what they call handies in a book that's in their life? I mean, yeah, that was some, of course. Yes. So I, obviously I agree with all the things that you're saying. Um, the timeline is actually a little bit more uh, insidious than that. They, mm. The FBI asked everybody to test for COVID every 72 hours if we were not going to get the COVID vaccine shots, um, which I struggle to call vaccines in a lot of ways because they move the definition on me. But that's another Call story. them gene therapy or therapy. I, I do. I, I think they're a gene therapeutic and whether they work or not is another animal too. Yeah. So, um, lo- the, so the long and short of it is, is they were uh, requiring that we started taking those in uh, Thanksgiving of last year in 2021. Um, I refused. I said, under no circumstances would I take something if not, if, if everybody else wasn't going to test either. At that point, we already knew that COVID spread to everybody. And in fact, amusingly enough, my boss who you know had gotten shots, his wife had gotten shots against her will, but she had to for her employment, allegedly. Um, she was sick with COVID on the day that he and I talked about it, you know, so she's so-called vaccinated <laughs> and and she's got COVID and he goes, you know, you know, and I felt fine. I great. It's like, look, I've been a paramedic with, and I have a top secret clearance. How about I just don't come to work if I'm sick? I think that's a reasonable position for any of us. You already trust me with national security secrets. I know how we compromise enemy nation states. Um, maybe you would just let me stay home with the sniffles. I won't bring a box of Kleenex in. I'll just do it at home. And I got sick leave and I'll take it. And that was not an option. So that was kind of where I kind of drew the line. So I, I refused to test for COVID without symptoms, looking down the line and seeing that that's, if you open that door up, you open the door up to, you know, guys having STD tests on Monday because they might meet a girl on, on Saturday night and girls- They wouldn't care about that stuff, Kyle. They wouldn't care about that stuff. They well, would... <laughs> you know, we're living in a world where if that's the 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 slope we go down and we want to know all the details of our employees, whether they're pro- public or private employees, I don't want to live in that world. Yeah. I don't want to live in a world where they force women who are under a certain age to take a pregnancy test uh, because pregnancy is very disruptive to work functions. And I got two daughters, so I'm not going to be playing that. So that may be an extreme and a hyperbolic example running down the line, but I can see it. It's a direct line from where we're standing. And yep. I'm not going to do that. So I, I absolutely refuse that. Um, I got put home on my personal leave and then I got put on AWOL, um, which I didn't know was a status because I'd been in the military. I didn't know that the civilian um, workforce for the federal government can be AWOL, but that's absent without leave. And I showed up to work without a COVID test and I was told I had to leave. And so I was absent without leave because I wasn't prepared to do my job because I didn't take a COVID test. And these so are under EUA. You say EUA and they are under EUA right. because so and you're right. You're right. Yeah, the black letter law says, I mean, they already adjudicated this in 20, in 2003 with the uh, so-called anthrax mm-hmm. vaccines that came in through the military. And so, you know, I'm I'm a student of some of this information more than I wanted to be. I'm also a student of EEO law now and I don't care to be I'm, I'm not an, I'm not a lawyer. I don't make these decisions, but I can read what it says and I interpret, you know, what federal statutes mean in in criminal ways for a living. So, you look at it and you go, "Okay, well the emergency use says that you ha- must have the consent of the person who's accepting the test. Well, mm-hmm. I don't consent. Mm-hmm. Now what? 
And maybe that consequence is that you fire me. I'm okay with that, actually. I was actually fine with the idea of them firing me over this. But they don't have that kind of they don't have that kind of uh, fervor or they don't have that kind of uh, support to be able to actually eliminate me. So when I was actually shooting in the desert to circle back to that was, you know, I was on AWOL. So when I say that I had some time off in the video, yeah, my time off was forced. It was unpaid and I was on unpaid leave for a period of two months because I refused to take a COVID test, which magically changed a couple days before the State of the Union um, or maybe the day after the State of the Union happened. I think they changed it on the Thursday of the State of the Union. And on Friday, I went back to work. Mm. Interesting. Um, to much to everyone's chagrin. So, you know, I look at that. I saw this, the fact that the FBI was doing uh, tests every 72 hours, which is illogical and insane. Uh, so are any prophylactic testing, as far as I can tell, there's not been done in any, you know, um, medical environment that I've ever worked in. And then suddenly, uh, you know, the White House spokes uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, says, you know, Americans would agree that once a week is OK. And the same day we got guidance that the FBI would be moving to once a week tests. So when you move the goalposts like that, where I can see you moving them, it's like I see you. What I changed don't believe you. scientifically in the 24th? There's no chance. Right. Yeah, there's clearly no scientific change. I think that we will be vindicated in that in, in court at some point. Um, but until that point, you know, I was out in the desert shooting. I was doing something that people do. Um, I just I just got a, a, a text from my buddy who was my neighbor out there in, in Las Cruces. And he he texted me and he said, hey, thanks for the, the shout out, because I, I mentioned, um, you know, he's a in the in the video. Marine. <laughs> yep. And he's a currently he's a he's a currently federally employed firefighter. He's a really, really good guy um, and just a, a, a great friend and a, and a good neighbor. And he said, I've been out there. You know, he, he grew up in New Mexico. He spent all, all of his life in New Mexico. And he lived in the house that he's been in there for eight or 10 years. And he's been going out there for a decade, you know, and no one's ever confronted him. So and that school has been there since 2012. So it's not like it's new. It's been there for a decade. It's been there as long as it, he's been living there and people shoot there every day. I don't think that it was anything or any wrongdoing by the officer. But the minute that he walked out and said, you know, I don't know if we're on city or county land, you've just told me that you don't know what your authorities are. Yeah. That's the end of an enforcement action. Now you're a friend and you're just talking to another person that you just met. Um, if I showed up on a search warrant and said, look, I don't I don't know if this is a federal matter or what you just lost all your credibility. You have to know what your authorities are. Whenever I was asked to do something on surveillance that was outside of my normal realm, it's the question is, what are my authorities? And you know what, who, what do we, who authorizes it? What are my authorities and, and what can we do? And if you don't know that answer as a law enforcement officer, you are treading on very, very dangerous ground. And again, it was a, such a benign interaction. It's almost not even worthy of being, being discussed. I mean that I'm not, I'm not just like it's not something that anybody would see and be like, oh, my God, that guy. Hard. But what happened was all of a sudden you go back to the office in, in New Mexico and this video, this body cam footage of you and this officer is floating around in your office for some reason. Right. Correct. Yep. And so there was no, there was no investigative purpose. There was no investigation into me. The person that would have initiated is a chief security officer. And um, when I when I reported it to him, which I I was required to report it by policy, and I did. I, I sent it to my boss and said, "Look, I don't have access to our systems because I'm on AWOL. But when I'm off AWOL, I will report it." And when I was off AWOL, I did report it, and that was the first that the chief security officer had heard about it, to my knowledge. Uh, he didn't act like it was a familiar subject to him in any way, shape, or form. I asked him a couple of quick questions about it, and he said, "No, you know, it's not common." I asked him, "Would would would it be reasonable for my boss to download body cam footage?" And you know, his response was like, "I don't know why. There's no investigation. It's his." job it's somebody else's job but for some reason my boss was passing it to people um sharing it with secretaries and other supervisors and other agents that were my colleagues um it, it's not even that interesting of a three-minute interaction to me it's not so when people said hey i saw your footage out in the desert it's a very strange moment first of all why and second of all like i didn't know there was footage but now i do 
And now I know you've all seen it. So then what happens? You all of a sudden they call you in and take your security clearance and all your equipment and say you're done. Like, how does that come? No, it it was way worse than that because I started back on the office on March 4th. um, And then on March 15th, I decided to report the fact that this body cam footage had had floated around my office to the uh, internal affairs intake unit, which is what uh, handles the investigations for OPR uh, for the FBI. It's it's IA for the FBI. And I allege that there was a misuse of authority and an abuse of power or whatever you want to call it. There was a couple of like specific things that I was concerned about, but essentially downloading that and using it was not appropriate for the position of my supervisor. And, uh, you know, it's an allegation. It's not proven. It's just something that I believe might be the case. And so I floated off to them. They gave it to the DOJ. The DOJ stomped on it. And the DOJ said, we disagree. And they did it under a whistleblower piece. They said, this is not whistleblower retaliation, which I didn't allege. I just said I thought it was abuse of power. Mm. Um, and then so that was on 315. I initiated you know, that sort of complaint on 415. My office initiated a complaint of unprofessional conduct with a police officer based on the same body cam footage. And on 418 in possibly the fastest FBI move uh, in history, <laughs> they uh, they rounded me up and walked me out the door. So they came in, they pulled, you know, I was having a conversation with my former supervisor about a a really personal matter. A friend of ours had a uh, tragedy and and we were talking about it and it was kind of stilted. It was uncomfortable, but I knew it was the right thing to do. So he and I are having this conversation in his office and the SAC, the, uh, the SAC, the lead agent for Albuquerque had driven down three and a half hours and surprised us along with his Lieutenant, um, the ASAC. And the two of them pulled me into a conference room and they removed my, my gun and my badge and my credentials and my card access to the building and they took my vehicle and then they drove me to my house to collect my body armor, which I had one piece of body armor that was still sitting at the house, um, which my wife was so furious about that she uh, left it in the middle of the road (laughs) where my house is and just said, you know, don't come on my property to pick up this equipment and if if it's not ours anymore to use. Wow, she's badass, that's awesome. Yeah, my wife's from Brooklyn, so she's uh, my girl. She's got a little bit of she's got a little spunk, <laughs> and, and then she and then she became an American by living in Texas. So she's got both of those things working. Amen. Amen. Uh, so so yeah, so they come and they picked up all my equipment on the 18th, and then I was put on admin leave for a couple of days. On the 28th, I got called back to the office, and I was told uh, that my security clearance was suspended indefinitely, and they proposed me with no security clearance to be on leave without pay indefinitely. And that's when that kind of kicked off. And they confirmed their own belief about that on June 1st. Coincidentally, the same day the DOJ squashed my so-called whistleblower retaliation claims. So my question to you is, when did all of the stuff that you had turned over, whether it be to Congress or whatever, start coming public? Was it before this or after this? November of last year. So I mean the, the threat tag yeah it was it was in the public well before this interaction with the body cam we actually have a we have so I've got a friend who's an attorney a senior attorney with the FBI with almost 30 years of experience and he's so senior and he's so recognized as being an excellent expert in his field that the uh, the attorney from the Albuquerque division called somebody at Washington uh, at the Hoover building so he uh, Albuquerque calls headquarters says hey we got this problem with a guy who's refusing to test for covid and also is a whistleblower mm. And they said, you should talk to, uh, you know, my friend, but they don't know he's my friend. And so he reaches out to me and I've already been kicked out of the office at this point. And he said, I just got a a request from Hoover 
to talk to your chief division counsel, who I'm not going to name because his name's not on any website. So I'll just leave him private for now. But the chief division lawyer from Albuquerque is having trouble with an employee who's both unvaccinated, a whistleblower and refusing to take COVID tests. Who do you think that could be? And there's there's like a, that's a subset of one in my like Albuquerque is a medium sized field office at best. So it's me. You know, there's no question about it. And this text message could have been easily pulled up because it was done. You know, the whole system happened in, on government phones. It could be very easily um, pulled by the OIG. It could be very easily pulled by the internal investigators at uh, DOJ or FBI. And nobody looked into it. So, I mean, I know it happened. I have the text messages still. Tell <laughs> and me. I'm sure that he didn't lie. Tell me what the likelihood, just to jump back into Spygate for a second, is okay. that all of those phones that Struck and Page and all of them were using magically all erased themselves for no reason other than, you know, how often does that happen in the FBI that people just erase their cell phones for no reason? Does it ever happen? As far as I know, no. Uh, um, there's actually a requirement that all all text messages and all emails are all preserved. Jeez. That's just the nature of the beast, especially, I mean, if you're using a government phone, the the exception, you know, the assumption is, is that everything is kept and recorded. And I know that that happens because when people are doing these OPR investigations, um, we've had people had to go and identify for, for discovery. Anything you say on your government phone could be used for discovery. If you're talking about a case, mm -hmm. which you are sometimes, and a lot of times, um, it's all discoverable. And so there has to be a mechanism to download that and use it. And people have been told, you know, I have friends that have said they had to comb through all their text messages from four years ago and try and identify which ones were relevant to the, the particular discovery or legal process or FOIA or whatever it may have been. So I don't believe that at all. And and neither does anybody else, obviously, like nobody in nobody in the bureau and nobody in the public thinks that that was something that happened accidentally. It's just it's just it's just and even if it did, let's say it did like it's a possibility because it's government software and government software is the worst. Um, government technology is the worst. We we were laughing about it the other day, you and I talking, but you know, the motto of the FBI IT department, I think, is yesterday's technology tomorrow. <laughs> if I got a brand new computer today, it would be, you know, something that they bought in 2019. Um, you know, that's how bureau computers work. That doesn't so that that doesn't have a lot of faith in it, but it's it's awfully convenient. And we don't really believe in coincidences when we're doing these types of criminal investigations. Yeah. Um, and so you so now you're you're out of there. there of course, it's not whistleblower retaliation or anything, Kyle. Of course. No, no, it's certainly because I made a bad choice talking to a cop and right. deciding to do something that I was legally allowed to do. Right. And, and so where I was legally allowed to do it. Correct. And so you start this call like you're going with the internal affairs or OPR or whoever it is that you're dealing with here on this. And they want to have you come in to, to do questioning because they took your security clearance away, which is absurd in the situation that we're in with you. I mean, absurd. And then you're, you're negotiating back and forth. You call this woman to find out whether or not she got an email that you had sent and ensues this hour and eight minute long conversation, which I cannot wait for you to release because it blows my mind. It's amazing. Like every part of it is amazing. Can you explain it? Cause we have five minutes and I'm or four minutes and I'm not going to be able to play it. Sure. Explain. So, uh, the, so you're talking about a phone call that I made to FBI headquarters. I called the supervisory special agent who was investigating my OPR complaint or, you know, the inquiry into me about whether or not I was unprofessional to a police officer. And I had sent her an email and I got no response. So I just called her to find out if she had gotten my email. 
And she launched into a 15 minute or, you know, 12 minute or 15 minute, something like that, uh, counseling session mm -hmm. about what I needed to do, but in very, very vague, like, like somebody was in a hostage situation. It just, like, I was listening to it and I thought, what is, is this the, lady? Okay. Well, like she's under direct. She under says direct. to you, the things you're doing aren't helping your situation. You right. really but need no, to stop. No specifics. Yeah. Like she doesn't right. want to say, stop being a whistleblower. You're killing yourself here. You're, you know, she's or like, stop, stop talking to the media, right. which I assume is what the real issue was. I mean, yep. they can't tell you to stop being a whistleblower to Congress, but for whatever reason, uh, she's extremely vague and it just got weirder and weirder. And so I listened to that for a little while and then I started responding. I, I'm always willing to listen to people. I'm willing to go into interview mode and just kind of hear what your, what your piece is. Um, but at some point, if you're telling me to do things and you're not willing to say it, then I will, because I have very little, I have very little fear about speaking things that are true. If it's true, I'm going to just say it. If we're going to have conversations, I, you know, I've told things to subjects in interviews and criminal prosecution where it's like, this is what's going on. You know, now what? And it's much easier to deal with people when you start playing cards open, because I already know what my cards are and I know what my hand is. And I don't really care if you know either. That's just the nature of the way that I am. I have so to. She, I have to play this little this little interlude. I have to do it. I'm sorry. I hope everyone can. I, all right. Hold on a second. Here we go. I think I'm in the right area here. The, remember who he's talking to. This is the case agent lady woman who's responsible for like reviewing and writing down his affidavit when it comes to his uh, what infraction <laughs> mm -hmm. that got his security clearance removed. Here we go. Um. Hannah, who was recently removed from his job, who was beating and stalking his ex um, and arrested by the state police, and he remained on the job for two years after that. There is nothing serious that anybody can allege about my behavior that would, that would be anywhere near or comparable to those things. And yet, instantly, my badge and my gun were gone. So this was always politically motivated. It was always going to be a hit job on it. And so I have zero faith in it. I, it your process is your own. I, I have to tell you, I, I disagree with that because they would have to get people like me in that camp. And that's no, they did. They, it was just the I think I think from what I'm looking at. Can everybody hear that real quick? Can everyone hear that? Hold on. Bear with me because we need to hear the rest of this. I know you can't hear it, Kyle. That's right. But I've heard it. Uh, you've heard it. All right. Hold on. No one's answering me. I'm just going to keep playing it and we'll hope for the best. Here we go. Yes, I see. He just kicked me out because he's a political hack because he's a coward. And I told him so, unfortunately, like I just told him, I was like, you know, you should be ashamed of this. This is a shameful action you're engaging in. And if you don't know that, then then you shouldn't even hold that that badge. There's so many people that have decided to go along and get along in this organization, and they all come and make apologies for their own behaviors to me over and over again. I have a lot of friends that retired. I have friends that retired over what's happened in the last two or three years, but they've told me basically since I signed up, it has gotten to the point where it is a snowball that is just running out of control down a hill. And I know that you see some of those things because you've been there long enough. A lot of these people had 30, you know, 30 years in, 28 years, 27 years experience. Um, my, my close friend just called me and told me, 27 years as an FBI agent. And he said, I no longer wake up and feel proud to be an FBI agent now. And it's one of the saddest things that I've had to experience. To me, that's absolutely gut-wrenching. And I'm absolutely ashamed for all the people that made it happen like that. But that's where we're at. We have a lot of really disappointed people and a lot of legacies that we're trodden on from, from good work for a long time. And I'm not ignorant of those things. I'm just disappointed that so many other people are willing to just co-sign on a bunch of evil behavior. And, and I mean that, like in, in no uncertain terms, do I mean but that But I'm going to argue with you on that. 
we are not, I am not, I am in this job because of the same fire that is in your heart. It's the same thing that has me in this job, this particular job. And I think that's great. I, I, like I said, I'm not taking anything away from any individual. It's the aggregate. It's the aggregate, and it's the it's the perception that America is now holding, and and America is holding that perception. If, no, if you've gone out and done street interviews, go, you know. If you go around and tell them that we're a big pile of nothing, uh, or worse, then yeah, they're going to go. Oh, see that? There's an FBI agent that's saying it's it's crap. There's nothing left to believe in. And don't you think that our adversaries? want to just hug you for what you're saying and what you're doing in the undermining of America's faith in the only piece of infrastructure of government that is there to protect the American people. Just to fill you in, Kyle, we just got to the point where she said, don't you think that our enemies want to hug you for what amounts to basically tarnishing the FBI, the only institution that is there to protect Americans, which is laughable and I could roll my eyes at behind my head over and around three times. I want to hear your yep. response, which we'll hear in a second. I'm just filling you in because you're sitting there in silence. So hold on, here we go. No problem. <laughs> no, I don't, don't I don't think that, that I don't think the enemy I don't think the enemy has any in, interest in what I'm about because what I'm 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 such a small symptom of what's going on right now. We we raided we put a, a search warrant into the sitting president's house. Like people have have lost their flipping minds. We have done things like pick up a man who was a a Catholic street preacher, and he was a father of seven, and he was defending his son. If someone came up and said the things to me in front of my children that they said to that man, I don't know if that person would still be breathing at any age. I would thrash them within an inch of their life. And all he did was push them out of the way and said, please stop talking to my son like that. And we went and arrested him. And I got it. They probably got a bunch of probationary agents who needed to get an arrest. And they sent 25 people to his door. But that is absolutely confirmation. Like the FBI doesn't need me to badmouth them. They're badmouthing themselves every single day for years. We had fake FISAs. We have so many disgusting practices that happen. And we had so many awful human beings working in the office that I was at. I had Peter Strzok's name on my case files when I first inherited them and as I started my first day on the job. And I had Andy McCabe signing off on cases that I had. And they were dog shit. They were absolutely garbage. They were just investigations into Americans that had no allegation of wrongdoing. And when I tried to close them, they wouldn't let it even happen. They said, well, you have to keep it open so you can keep papering your file. So you have something for file review. That is a broken organization. Like, it doesn't matter what our... our it, I... I it's broken. Uh, it's so broken. How I, you can't I, you can't have an organization that's investigating Americans that didn't do anything. That's in all of the years that I have been with this agency, I've not seen anything like that, and I'm just really shocked. She just said, "In all the years I've been with the agency, I've not seen anything like that." That is unbelievable to me. She's a, either she's been willfully blind, or she is. Utterly corrupt. It's one of the two. There's no way she's never seen anything like that. If she's in, if she's dealing with agents who have done things, quote, wrong, and you're saying in the call that there are agents who have literally been selling drugs and still have their security clearances. Yeah, well, so they, the FBI tends to, to do things on a very long timeline. 
And so you may be suspected of or, you know, video evidence of someone dealing drugs out of the evidence locker. And this has happened in a couple different field offices. It's just the nature of the work, right? Undercover people do that. It happens in police departments too. But they will leave them on the payroll for months or years until they finally have everything to come down and crash on them. Well, not we for do, you. I mean, we know, not for me. No, obviously, uh, three days was good. We, I mean, I know specifically of an instance of a guy that was arrested by state police or by a local police, rather, um, for stalking his ex. This happened in Montana. Um, the supervisor is the former supervisor of an office that I've spent time in. My One of my best friends works out of that office. And the supervisor was allowed to stay on the job for two years while he was going through his court case despite being caught in the act of stalking an ex that he had that, that had a restraining order. So these kind of things happen. And, and and here's the thing. I in some ways that's right because there's supposed to be due process. That's the system. Our system is not perfect by any means, but it's supposed to have due process and you are supposed to have your day in court. And so those are all innocent until proven guilty allegations. Okay. Except me. Except you. Right. And that's the thing. Like, they're right. basically saying to you, and we're going to end it after this, and I'm sure you'll be back because everybody's asking for you to come back in the in the chat, by the way. Um, they're saying it. to you, you need to wait as long as it takes for us to figure all this out before you can even start looking for another job. And also, you're still beholden to our process. So if we want you to come somewhere or do something, we're not paying you. We took all your clearance away. You have no power whatsoever. You're basically supposed to stay in abeyance. And you make the point in this call, which you will be releasing, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. I'm telling you, you got to do it. It's uh, he, balls, balls of steel. No. Have you ever seen anybody else who'll do it? No. You are you, my friend, are seriously amazing. Like I've been begging for someone like you to come along forever. And I know the majority of us feel the same way. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts, really, because the only way we have any prayer of even beginning to fix this absolute mess is with people like you and Steve and the other people you're amassing, which are several hundred thousand who knows <laughs> who knows <laughs> not a, not a thousand we haven't hit that number i'll let you know if it gets there that would be great i mean but th there's enough people now that that you can't you know you you can you can get rid of one you can get rid of two but a couple hundred not so easy but they're basically telling you to put your entire life on hold don't make any money and wait for them to finish this nonsense right that's what they do. I mean, that is the technique. It's starve people out. Um, you know, I had a friend that was that was let go for very, very suspicious reasons that were not performance related, but they claim they were. And uh, and so people who are on True Social will see him. He's uh, at Phil Kennedy. He's my good friend. We talk almost every other day, too. And uh, Phil was an FBI agent for 15 years. People at 15 years do not get removed from the FBI. They put them in a place where they don't care about them and they let them sit there until they retire. Um, Phil and I used to talk about people that were in that boat that we didn't like working with. And he refers to them as 20-year mistakes. Mm. And there are 20-year mistakes in the FBI. They hire them and then you, they just don't fire them. So for what happened to me to be so, you know, so swift, what happened to Phil to be so swift, what happened to Stephen Friend? happen so swiftly it shows that there's a different current working in the fbi at this point there's a there's a wave of of activity you know active activity or activism or whatever you want to call it that's working against people that have that are a problem for the bureau because we didn't comply with their things and and you know as you know we all have a lot of the same similar characteristics and they're the same religious and medical beliefs and so on you guys can draw your own conclusions um those are a one-to-one -one ratio in my experience right now with the FBI. And more importantly, everybody 
that I've heard of that's been um, suspended. You know, I had somebody uh, reach out to me the other day who's a longtime agent, has you know more than a decade in the bureau um, in closer to your area of the, of the world, and and he reached out and I said, you know, he's under OPR investigation for something that's completely ridiculous, absolutely absurd. And I said, let me guess, you're a Christian and you're unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And the answer, and I don't even need to guess, I already know. And that's not okay. That That's not something that can be acceptable. So well, yeah, there's there's no question that we're, you know, this call will, I'll, I'll, I'll release it in pieces. I don't think everybody has 68 minutes to sit down and listen to this. Um, my buddy compared it to working a speed bag. He said, that's, you know, I'm sitting there listening to her throw punches on a heavy bag. And then at some point I just got sick of it and I started working the speed bag. So it's it, enlightening. It's a lot. It's a lot of me talking. Um, aggressively but my my new rule is that i don't i don't let people make claims that are false without challenging them and so that's where i'm at it's not that you're talking a lot it's what you are saying is so true and who you are saying it to most people in your position wouldn't okay a lot of people wouldn't say the things that you're saying to the person you're saying them to and she is stunned because i think deep down she knows First of all, you can tell in the tone of her voice, she kind of gives you a little bit of a nudge on some of the things that you say that she agrees with. I've analyzed this pretty well, and I'm gonna analyze it when you release it and be like, look, here, this, that, because it's amazing. Um, there's a give, send, go for you, Kyle, that I put in the show notes. It's givesendgo.com slash Kyle Serafin. You didn't ask me to share that with anybody. We've never even talked about it, but I'm sharing it here today because I think that you deserve the support. You're without pay, you have a family at home, Everybody needs to support people like you and not let them stand alone. God bless you. And thank you so much for spending an hour and nine minutes with me today. For sure. I really appreciate it. And as far as the Gibson go, if people read on it, um, mostly that's there to support another whistleblower who's in the same situation as me, but didn't have the ability to prep for it. Um, He was more junior in his career and he's done significant I would say significant good for the American public. He released uh, information to Representative Jim Jordan's office um, that showed the actual investigations that were being done into parents at school board. So he cooperated what I did with the actual investigations. Um, He has stood up for journalists and uh, but his his whistleblowing activity was exclusively to Congress and they accused him of going to the media. And so they have suspended him for what I'm actually doing right now, I would say. And so that is unconscionable, but mm-hmm. it's it's well within the tool set for them to use that kind of blunt instrument. So that will be supporting my friend. Like I said, I don't want to say his name because he may get his job back because even the the journalists that he's accused of going to are, are willing to write affidavits on his behalf because they've never heard of him because he didn't go know, to I them. reached out to him. I reached out to him and say, hey, do you know this guy? And they go, no. And it's like, OK, well, I know that already. <laughs> I already knew. Unbelievable. Uh, because he's just an incredibly honest human being. He's an army veteran, you know, a disabled vet and a, uh, you know, um, and a former cop. And um and the kind of person that you want in the FBI, to be fair. So anybody who wants to support that, they're supporting a good friend of mine, and I'm just the pastor at the moment. Awesome. Well, that's great too. Um, any parting words for anybody? Uh, tell people where they could find your Rumble and YouTube channel. You've got some really awesome content up there. You're going to start doing more. Yeah. Tell- there's Rumble. There's YouTube. They're all under Kyle Seraph, and they're all under my full name. So K Y L E. S like Sierra, E-R-A-P-H-I-N, not like M, which is the angel. It's N like November. Um, I'm at Kyle Serafin on Truth and on Twitter and on YouTube and on Rumble. I've been putting a little bit on there, so I appreciate that. And uh, I would just encourage people. It's a very weird spot for me to be in at 41 years old now that I'm telling people to pray for this country. Uh, If you had told me I would be saying that at 25 years old, I would have never believed you because... Um, we all come in and out of where our faith is in the in, in God and, and how that works. But um, I think it's 
it's beyond what we're going to be able to accomplish by means of man at this point. And so, you know, pray for the strength of the people to do the right thing. Pray for people to hold the line where they are. And um, yeah, and I've been really grateful for everybody's support. Everybody's been positive. I was promised death threats and I've had none yet. So amazing. Um, we're going to keep, keep the spotlight. We got to yeah, keep just shining we... a light on you. You all of you guys need a light. That's all. So. I really appreciate it. So have a great time one. today, too. All right, guys. Thanks, Tracy. See you soon. <laughs> You've been listening to the Dark Delight podcast. Uh, you can hear us every Monday, Wednesday, Friday on podcast audio at 2.30 Eastern Time. Tune in Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com. Or you can catch us live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8.30 a.m. Eastern on Rumble and Getter. We will talk to you on Friday. <laughs>